Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, more data on the mindset of business owners, a majority of which expect a full rebound from the impact of the pandemic within the year. And who are America's investment heroes? The Progressive Policy Institute is out with their list of the U.S. companies with the most capital spending to promote economic growth in the coming year. In our ongoing Throwback Thursday segment this morning with work at home being the new normal, how to tell when online conferences will do or an in-person meeting is necessary to get the best results. And June is National Camping Month. We have what you need before trekking off for a great adventure in the great outdoors. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, June 10th, 2021. There is always a reason to celebrate each and every day, and today is Ballpoint Pen Day. <laughs> but then again, I mean, it's certainly worth uh, celebrating. Otherwise, we'd be sitting around writing with quills. Um, no, the Ballpoint Pen uh, was invented on this date in 1943. So, uh, has, has anybody... Show of hands. Has anybody uh, written with a fountain pen? I mean, does anybody use a fountain pen anymore? Those were pretty much the standard before ballpoint pens uh, were invented. And then, of course, before that, the uh, quill and inkwell, um, but uh, which I don't think anyone has, uh, has used. A fountain pen? I mean, unless uh, you are into calligraphy or some sort of fancy uh, writing for some reason, you probably have never uh, used a uh, fountain pen, but... Happy Ballpoint Pen Day today. It is also National Black Cow Day. But that is not celebrating the animal, but rather the ice cream treat, which is also known as the root beer float. Do you call it do you call a root beer float or do you call a black cow? I think in this part of the country we call them root beer floats. But uh, in some uh, parts of the country, uh, they are called black cows. And uh, so National Black Cow Day or National Root Beer Float Day, uh, National Herb and Spice Day, and National Iced Tea Day. So today would be a good day for a, an iced tea, a cool, refreshing iced tea, or a black cow, a root beer float. Maybe another uh, rather warm day. So there you go. Reasons to celebrate today. This, I want to bring this up because this has gotten some traction online. There's been some discussion. I don't know if you've seen this story. A really interesting, odd story. A 30-year-old Texas woman who disguised herself as her 13-year-old daughter and went undercover at her middle school, uh, all for the supposed purpose of exposing gaps in the school's security system. Now, this has caused a... Uh, a Interesting debate online about whether or not the ends justified the means here. The woman posted her findings to YouTube, and that's when it kind of went viral. Casey Garcia got herself all doled up in a yellow hoodie, skinny jeans, kicks, and a face mask for her big expose, where she wandered the halls undetected by students and staff members. Shockingly, she did manage to moonlight as her seventh grade daughter for the majority of the school day. Now, mind you, Ms. Garcia is not a 
I mean, she's a small woman, 4'11". She stands 4'11", weighs 105 pounds. So she could probably pass for a 13-year-old. But she was able to dupe her daughter's teachers. And highlights from her tell-all video show her interacting even with the principal. Sitting in class, eating in the cafeteria, with no issue whatsoever. No one questioned her. Uh, No word on how or if her daughter's friends or her daughter herself actually played into the charade, whether they knew it was, well, obviously her daughter knew it was happening because she posed as her daughter, which means her daughter wasn't in school that day. So her her daughter had to be part of it. But whether any of her daughter's friends knew about it or not is unclear. Eventually, Ms. Garcia was busted and she confessed that she posed as a child to perform a social experiment. Now, in the end, she was hauled off to the El Paso County Jail on uh, charges of criminal trespass and tampering with government records. In addition, she was also slapped with an outstanding traffic warrant for an incident back in uh, 2017 that had yet to be resolved, so she's got that to deal with. But there's a lot of discussion and debate uh, online as to whether, I mean, she obviously exposed some shortcomings in the school's security system, but did the ends justify the means? Was this the right way of doing this? She has since posted a video where she explains why she did it, saying she wanted to expose the flaws in the school's security that could be taken advantage of by someone with less than honorable intentions. And uh, she says in the video, I bet you anything that someone else can do this, and that's why I did this. Uh, Of course, she also made a video of her arrest and shared that on YouTube, too. But uh, the goal is admirable to ultimately make schools, make her daughter's school more secure. But going about it in this way has uh, certainly become rather controversial. So anyway, if you uh, happen to see that on this, uh, generated a lot of buzz online. What do you think? I don't know. So uh, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to start off your Thursday morning. The Houston Methodist Hospital System in Texas has suspended 178 of its employees this week for refusing to get vaccinated for COVID-19. The suspension, the hospital says, will last for two weeks, after which they will be given another chance to get vaccinated. If they still refuse, they will be fired. Now, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has said that a vaccine mandate by a private employer is legally permissible. They can do that. Your employer can require you to be vaccinated as a condition of employment. Still, Bloomberg reports that 117 employees at Houston Methodist sued last month over what they call an experimental vaccine, citing the World War II-era Nuremberg Code against, quote, medical experimentation on unwilling human subjects, unquote. That is not necessarily what that uh code was meant to prevent but that's the argument they're using ceo of houston methodist dr mark uh, mark bloom says all 178 who have refused to get vaccinated represent less than one percent of the hospital's 25,000 employees 
<coughs> excuse me, and that their 99% plus vaccinated rate is tops for any hospital system in the country. But uh, really interesting that 178 healthcare workers uh, are refusing to get vaccinated. So on the one hand, this will add fuel to the fire among those who are dead set against getting the vaccine. On the other hand, those supporters of the vaccine science will say these are 178 people who really shouldn't be working in the healthcare industry anyway. So you decide. Not going to pass judgment one way or the other. Just report the story and uh, make of that what you will. Kind of interesting. Interesting data released uh, yesterday. Um, Was this yesterday or is this the day before yesterday? The U.S. fertility rate hit a record low in 2020. And it had nothing to do with the pandemic. Well, it might have accelerated the decline, but the drop in the U.S. fertility rate has been underway for several years. The fertility rate, birth rate hit a uh, a low, a record low in 2019 and did in 2018. So each year, the past three, we've broken the previous year's record. Right now, the average number of children that a woman is expected to give birth to over her lifetime is 1.64. That is both the lowest rate recorded since the government began tracking these statistics in the 30s and also well below the so-called replacement level fertility, which is about 2.1. And that is where the concern is. Uh, Social scientists and policymakers say this is the rate that the country needs to maintain in order to keep population numbers stable. When the fertility rate drops below the replacement level, the population grows older and shrinks, which can slow economic growth and strain government budgets. So recently, some experts have questioned if we really should be so concerned about low fertility. Uh, Eric Striesing, the University of Vienna, says that there are ways to overcome the challenges of low fertility, but it will take an investment in the people who have been born already. In addition, fertility rates are now below replacement level in every post-industrial society, not just the United States. Now, that is fascinating. This is not a problem unique to America. In fact, there was a story, what a, I think it was last week, where China has lifted its restriction on the number of children uh, a couple can have. It used to be the population was growing so much, there were so many people in China that you were restricted to one child per family. Then they upped that to two, and now I think they've made it three. Uh, But there aren't a whole lot of families that are expanding as a result. And so even China has this problem. Uh, And it is not clear if and when the trend will reverse itself. There is some good news about low fertility. It does ease ecological pressures. It prevents overcrowding, reduces the infrastructure costs that come with a growing population. Still, that's not to say it doesn't come without its challenges. For example, many policymakers fear the ballooning population of older adults will overburden the nation's dwindling workforce Ultimately, the take-home message is that the study findings 
suggests that we could ease the problems of a low-fertility society if we're willing to invest in children's education and better support for women in the workforce. So while we don't know exactly how far the fertility rate can fall before it really does become a problem, right now they're just debating whether it's a problem, what the number is where everybody agrees it's a problem, we don't know. The solutions may be more straightforward than we think, they say. So that's what they... <clears throat> Very interesting. And by the way, uh, speaking of uh, population issues, uh, did you know this? Kind of interesting. Chew on this. A dental student has gone viral on TikTok after revealing that the dentist might be able to tell whether a patient is pregnant just by looking in their mouth. Uh, the student uh, posts videos from time to time uh, with all kinds of interesting dental facts, and this is one of them. She explains that there are a few indications in a patient's mouth that may reveal a pregnancy, including nausea and enamel erosion and what is called pregnancy gingivitis. This is a real thing. Uh, as much as 50%, nearly half, 30 to 50% of expectant women have pregnancy gingivitis, inflamed and tender gums that are more pro uh, prone to bleeding. The American Pregnancy Association says this is caused by hormonal changes that increase the blood flow to the gum tissue and cause gums to be more sensitive, irritable, and swollen. And uh, the hormonal changes may also hinder the body's response to bacteria, potentially leading to periodontal infections that make it easier for plaque to build up on the teeth. The severity of the condition usually increases in the second trimester. The American Dental Association recommends that pregnant women continue to see their dentist for oral examinations and cleanings, etc., 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 and all of that. But did you know that the dentist might be able to tell you if you're pregnant? So, there you go. I just thought that was uh, really interesting, and I never knew that. You learn something new on this program every day. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast. Partly sunny today with a high of 84. Partly cloudy tonight, low of 67. A Finley gas station was robbed. It happened at the S&G gas station at 800 West Trenton Avenue at 2.01 a.m. Wednesday. The clerk told police that a man asked for change, and when she opened the register, he grabbed the $20 bills. The clerk tried to stop the suspect from leaving, but he forced himself away and ran out of the store and then drove off. You can get more, including a description of the suspect, on our website. The 32nd annual Julie Cole Charity Golf Classic was held at Finley Country Club. Eric Brown with Lanter Valley Health Foundation says it turned out being a great day for golf. It was a beautiful day. We didn't get rained out. Really happy that we got to pull this off and, and really get everyone back together for a really special event to start off the summer. He says the charity event raised more than $140,000 this year for their three main beneficiaries, Bridge Home Health and Hospice, the BVHS Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Program, and the Julie Cole Junior Golf Fund. Get more on our website. Child care providers are pushing back against a bill in the Ohio General Assembly that would cut quality standards for public daycare providers around the state as a cost-saving measure. 
Lynn Gutierrez is the assistant director for Groundwork Ohio, a nonprofit advocacy group that supports early education. She says Ohio Star program ensures all children are getting a quality education. What are you willing to invest in with the public dollar? Do you want to invest in babysitting or do you want to invest in something that will yield returns later? Educators say if the state chooses to invest less in early childhood education, more problems will follow. That's ONN's Kevin Landers reporting. If you stop by the Hancock County Farmer's Market today for some homemade soap or maybe to get your knife sharpened, you can also get vaccinated against the coronavirus. Hancock Public Health will be at the Farmer's Market today giving out the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The vaccine will be administered from the health department's new mobile health clinic. The Farmer's Market runs from 4 to 6 today in the parking lot of the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. another survey on the state of small and medium-sized businesses we enter this post-pandemic economic period of recovery i've been looking at this from all angles this week this report comes from the principal financial well-being index it is conducted annually by the principal financial group where kara hoganson is senior vice president kara you found that two-thirds of business owners say they expect a rebound from the impact of the pandemic Within the year, that was the number that really stood out to me in looking at some of the highlights of this survey. Isn't that great news? That's a significant improvement, as you might expect, from the response to that same question that we got in the second half of of last year. And just to add on to that, 45% of small to medium-sized businesses actually expect to recover within six months. Mm. So they believe that it's kind of like what we've seen in the travel industry, that demand is actually higher now than it was in the weeks before the shutdown started, which seems to support the idea that we are going to have this explosion of pent-up demand for goods and services across the board, or at least that's the general way of thinking. Is that what we take from this? I think that is certainly one of the takeaways from this information. You know, there's just a general optimism that we're seeing come through in these results. And in fact, that optimism, the level from this most recent wave of our survey is at 57%. 57% of businesses are optimistic about the next 12 months Mm -hmm. economic outlook. And that level is higher than it was pre-pandemic. Now, Again, as we were saying the other day, and I don't mean to throw cold water on all of this optimism, but if you've got close to 60% uh, feeling very optimistic, that means still 40% are not. 40%, 4 in 10, may still be struggling through all of this, and they may not be seeing this economic recovery. What is the message to those who are not seeing this yet? Maybe they feel a little left out. Well, Yes, I think that is that is fair. So a couple of, of points. We actually do see, you know, a really small percentage of people that are pessimistic. I think that the remaining, you know, 35%, let's call it, mm. are, you know, they're just kind of neutral. But what I would point to is that uh, cash flow is is in a good position for a significant percentage of the small to medium-sized businesses. So 77% of the businesses that do and got feedback from 
say that they're comfortable with their cash flow position. So while they may not necessarily be feeling optimistic, they mm. are comfortable with their financials. Yeah. And when you break that down to employers that have less than 500 employees, that percentage is 70% are feeling comfortable with their cash flow. And if you look at the larger employers, those that have more than 500 employees, almost 90% of them are comfortable. So again, while while they may there may be 35ish percent that are cautious yeah they are feeling comfortable for the most part with their cash flow. That's that's what I was going to say. It sounds like uh, while it may not be off the charts optimism for a significant portion, there is at least cautious optimism uh, among even those uh, individuals as well. So what else uh, stood out for you about what uh, small business, small and medium sized businesses owners uh, are, are saying about where they are now and where they are headed? You know, that one of the things that stood out to me is really around staffing. Staffing is really stable. So if, if we take a look at what this, this survey told us and look at those employers that have less than 500 employees, 82% of them either increase staff or have maintained their staffing levels through the, the pandemic. If we take that same information and look at those employers that have more than 500 employees, that percentage that have maintained or increased their staff is at 87%. So while this time last year was certainly a, a sharp right turn and a significant impact, it was for many, I'm not going to say all, but for many businesses, somewhat short-lived, and we are certainly um, seeing customers return and business to resume what will be our new normal. With respect to that, the uh, new normal, what changes that businesses made uh, during the pandemic do they feel are likely to become permanent moving forward in this new normal? There's a few things that really come to light, one of which is that you know, there's just a greater awareness around the need for income protection and life insurance protection. Mm. I think there are so few people that whether it's their own immediate family, whether it's distant family, or whether it's friends or neighbors, there's so few of us that haven't been impacted in some way by having um, someone we know either directly, you know, sick from COVID or unfortunately passing away from COVID. And so I think that has just created an additional awareness around the need for financially taking care of people in a situation where there's an untimely death or where, when someone is not able to work for a period of time, ensuring that there's income coming into the household to pay the mortgage and pay the, the tuition expenses for children who may be in college. And so those are, those are things that can be supported through benefit offerings at the workplace. Hmm. The other thing I would point out is really around mental health and well-being. Yeah. Going to a completely remote work environment so quickly. And then, you know, we're just now starting to see, you know, the larger number of employees either begin to return to the workplace or employers just starting that conversation around what return to the workplace looks like. Yeah. If all of that's had a mental impact. Mm -hmm. And so much more conversation around mental health and well-being and what employers can do to support employees um, 
in getting the resources they may need. Here again, uh, we seem to be uncovering a recurring theme here. Those are uh, issues that predate the pandemic and uh, were being discussed even before all of this happened. But certainly what we've been through over the past year or so has brought that into uh, much sharper focus. So you've got a lot of that going on, it seems. Again, uh, Kara Hoganson, Senior Vice President of the Principal Financial Group, uh, looking at the Principal Financial Wellbeing Index. You have all of this on your website for folks to kind of dig into the data? We absolutely do. So if listeners want to go to principal.com and it's spelled P-R-I-N-C-I-P-A-L.com and then in the search bar they can type navigating business now and have access to the information and then some that we just talked about plus all of the historical information from the many different uh, waves of this survey we've done over the years. Kara, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. So we've spent time this week talking about the state of small business and the mindset of small business owners heading into this post-pandemic economic recovery period. The economic numbers the last few months have been very good. Certainly the economy is adding jobs again. But there is another factor that keeps America's economy moving forward that a lot of people really don't understand, and that is capital spending. And I have to be honest, this is something that we don't normally talk a whole lot about, but each year the Progressive Policy Institute publishes its list of investment heroes spotlighting America's companies that are actually investing in America. Michael Mandel is chief economic strategist for the Progressive Policy Institute with a deeper look at this year's investment heroes list. Michael, start with uh, how your institute comes up with this list. What are you looking at? What are the criteria that you use to compile the list? Uh, thanks very much uh, for having me. We, we look at companies each year that invest in America. That is capital spending, plant equipment, uh, information technology, and so forth, because we believe that capital spending is absolutely essential for creating good jobs. And we believe, that, as you sort of say, that this is a, this is a factor that's not normally looked at. So this year's we've been doing this for ten years, and this year's list was extraordinary because we had the pandemic, and we're sort of so we're looking at companies that continue to invest in America despite the pandemic, and actually stepped up to the plate. How Our number one company on this year? Go ahead. No, I was going to just interject. Uh, you talk about uh, companies that are investing in America uh, despite the pandemic. How many uh, of these uh, companies? How many companies did you find uh, are, are investing? in America because of the pandemic? I mean, there's so many things uh, over the course of the past year have caused people to sort of re-examine what they do and the way they do it. Is Does that uh, apply in this case as well? Well, I, it, absolutely, it absolutely does. I mean, so remember the pandemic introduced a lot of uncertainty. So companies had to decide how much they really wanted to sort of put, put their chips on the table. And that, you know, our number one company, which was Amazon, spent an really stepped up and spent an astounding $34 billion in the U.S. this year. Uh, they didn't have to spend that much, okay, but they did. They spent an astounding $34 billion building out their e-commerce fulfillment facilities, hiring hundreds of thousands of workers, and basically, uh, you know, putting a lot of stuff into place that uh, benefited a lot of Americans. At, you know, at the same time, uh, we had um, broadband providers like, uh, like AT&T and CenturyLink and Verizon and uh, and uh, and Comcast that that also 
did the same thing. They sort of went in and invested in, in their networks and to make their networks stronger and more broad so that it was easier for people to work from home. Uh, we had tech companies like uh, Google and Apple and Intel that also continued to invest in the U.S., you know, for the same reason to sort of provide Americans with the tools that they, that they needed to, um, uh, to survive the pandemic, basically. Right. Yeah. You know, as a lot of people did. So talk a little bit about, as we said, this is uh, an area where we often are guilty of not seeing the association. So help us out. uh, uh, Explain how capital spending uh, helps companies create jobs. Well, if you think about a worker who wants to do a good job, a worker who wants to do a good job needs, needs the right equipment. If you're working in an office, you need a good computer and a good internet connection and you need a a good software. If you're working in a factory, you need good machinery. You can't have old, broken down stuff. You know, you sort of sit there and you look at it. You sort of are forever trying to tinker with it to make it work. You're not productive. Uh, if you're a truck driver, you need a, a good truck. Um, and you just go, you just go down the list. And if you try to create jobs without capital spending, it, it would be as if you were trying to cross the street without shoes. It's possible, but it's slow. It's painful and not very productive. So. Increasingly, what we notice is that the companies that have a lot of capital spending also create a lot of jobs directly or indirectly, and we wanted to recognize those companies. Absolutely. Again, uh, talking about uh, ways of moving the economy forward uh, post-pandemic especially, you mentioned a lot of the ones uh, on the list that you were uh, citing as as examples earlier uh, come out of the uh, tech sector. Uh, Obviously, it's easy to see why that is an area of growth. Uh, are there other sectors where you are seeing solid growth and and where are, are the ones that may be struggling a bit right now? So we're seeing rebounds in, in areas like energy and, and transportation that sort of did poorly in the pandemic. Mm. The really interesting area is, is, is manufacturing. Um, and, you know, manufacturers have perhaps not invested as much in the U.S. as they, as they, as they might have in recent years. Uh, which has been associated with a loss of manufacturing jobs yeah. in, in areas, in areas like Ohio. Not a, not a good thing. And so, you know, we're looking at, we're hoping for a rebound, especially with Americans sort of buying so much these days. We're hoping for a rebound in manufacturing investment. That may require some help, uh, from Washington, from Washington where, you know, we've got the, uh, we've got the uh, Biden administration with a lot of pro-manufacturing investment proposals as part of the American Job Plan. We've got Representative Tim Ryan, who's really very interested in, in boosting manufacturing investment. And, and these are, these are, these are really important going forward because we'd like to see a, we, we, you know, it's, 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 it's really good that there's an investment in, in digital. It, these are, this is very important to the economy, but we need to sort of broaden it out to other sectors as well, like manufacturing. And this is where the, activities that are going on in Washington that may sort of give a little bit of help to uh, to manufacturing investment uh, could be important. Unique perspective on all of this and uh, will really give us something to watch uh, over the course of the next year or so as we advance through this post-pandemic economic recovery. Michael Mandeligan, uh, Chief Economic Strategist for the Progressive Policy Institute. Uh, their uh, list of investment heroes is out and uh, I'm assuming you've got more information on this list and uh, the companies on it. And why at your website, correct? Absolutely. And our website is progressivepolicy.org. People should go there, read the report, read the other stuff that we have about the economy. Uh, 
you know, maybe if you want to go to sleep, you can read it. But uh, otherwise, if you like that sort of stuff, it's the, it's the place to go. <laughs> we, we, will, uh, we will link it up on our webpage. Michael, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Today's Throwback Thursday segment. This morning, we keep hearing that the remote office is the new normal in the workplace. And indeed, many companies are allowing employees more flexibility in working from home, even post-pandemic, after learning that it worked out okay during the pandemic. So a lot of workplaces, in fact, uh, doing the uh, program today uh, from the bunker, hunkered down here in the home studio myself. But what we also learned during the pandemic is that online meetings are not a complete replacement for getting everybody together in the same room. Uh, A year ago, last June, we spoke with Howard Tiersky, uh, founder of the digital transformation agency From, about how to differentiate between meetings that can be done online and those times when you're better off face-to-face. It is today's Throwback Thursday. Howard, it's not like you aren't all in on the whole idea of this transformation of the workplace, but you say, indeed, there are times when meetings with clients and colleagues should be done in person as opposed to online. First of all, when you conduct online meetings, there are a lot of practices that can either make them really fantastic or they can be really flat, um, you know, uh, uh, unproductive uh, uses of time and you can get that feeling like what I call Zoom zombies are on the other end, a bunch of people on yet another Zoom meeting. So what are the criteria that one should look for in deciding what is the best form for a meeting to take? What do you use to evaluate which uh, gather, which type of gathering is best? Number one, is this a meeting where you're really trying to focus on building relationships? because that is much more effectively done in person. The second is, is this uh, an emotional moment? Is this a major celebration? Is this when you're having to tell people that you're laying off a third of your staff? Is there some reason why this meeting is an, it was one of those times when you really need to be able to look people in the eye, not look in the camera, but really look them in the eye and have have a communication. And the third is, is there some physical component to the, to the meeting that really not, having the physical experience is going to seriously suboptimize the meeting. And I would just put an asterisk on the relationship one. Periodically, you need those meetings where they're going to help people continue to develop stronger relationships working as a team. And so sometimes it may not be that any one particular meeting has to be the one, but you want to make sure that if you have an ongoing team, for example, that you're periodically doing that, maybe even quarterly or something like that, depending on the logistics If people are all over the world. It may only be annually, yeah. but once in a while, getting the benefit of that in-person connection. Yeah. You cite a couple of other examples that I think were, were kind of interesting just to, to throw these out there. And, and uh, we all know that in-person meetings in the office do have a tendency to go maybe longer than they need to be. But you say when meetings need to be long and involved, then in-person meetings are actually far more productive than doing these online. It certainly gets to be uh, wearing when you're trying to have an all-day meeting on Zoom. When you need people, you say when people need to be fully engaged, it's very easy 
in a Zoom meeting to kind of pop in and out or, or get distracted by the dog or somebody ringing the doorbell or whatever happens to be. Yeah. That's right. Conversely, when they are necessary, what is maybe at the top of the list to overcome some of those issues that cause people to dread those in-person meetings to begin with? For one thing, we don't let people sit in the same place for too long, 30, 40 minutes max. And then you're up, you're moving, you're moving to another area. Second of all, we want to keep people engaged. We don't want them just sitting there like couch potatoes watching PowerPoint after PowerPoint. So that usually means breaking people up into smaller teams if it's a larger group, letting them engage more intimately with people who are presenting content, or having them digest content in other ways. Not all content needs to be communicated via someone standing up and showing you slides. Sometimes it can be about getting into small groups and giving people a set of material and saying, look at this material as a group and determine what you think are the three most important things about it that are going to affect our business. And then let each group report back to the larger group. And now everyone's swimming in the content. They're participating in the content. And they're processing it much more intensely because they're being asked to do something with it mm-hmm. rather than just sitting there and being asked to consume it. So some uh, thoughts on how to make for uh, more effective meetings, both online and in person in this new normal of the workplace that we are all kind of adjusting to things to to keep in mind moving forward. Howard Tierski, again, founder and president of the Digital Transformation Agency from you mentioned the book uh, that you have with lots more uh, advice and especially timely now, uh, given the situation that so many companies find themselves in. Where do we find that? Um, you can find the book on Amazon, Impactful Online Meetings. Uh, you can also go to our website, ImpactfulOnlineMeetings.com, where there's other helpful resources. Today's Throwback Thursday from uh, last June with Howard Tierski uh, on better meeting structures, both online and in person, during this uh, new normal now where uh, more people working remotely and knowing the difference between meetings that can be done online and those that really do need to be in-person, face-to-face gatherings, uh, which is perhaps the most important distinction to take away. You can learn more at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. Today's Throwback Thursday. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. This person doesn't sound very happy. Police in Stafford County, Virginia, say last week a suspect identified as 36-year-old James Springer was working as a DoorDash driver and had arrived at McDonald's just before 10 a.m. to pick up an order, I guess. He reportedly became agitated when he was told it was too early to get a Happy Meal. Witnesses say Mr. Springer allegedly said before leaving the restaurant that he would come back and execute everyone. (laughs) That's not very happy. All over a happy meal. Uh, After he made the threat, that's when McDonald's workers contacted police who searched for Mr. Springer, but he eventually returned to the restaurant on his own and was taken into custody without incident. He was charged with disorderly conduct, abusive language, and four counts of brandishing. I don't know if he actually brandished a weapon, but he was charged with doing so. (laughs) What do you mean I can't get a happy meal? I'm going to come back and execute everyone. It's a little bit of an overreaction, I think. Elsewhere in today's broken news, Wisconsin police say a woman set her husband on fire 
because she believed he poisoned her chicken wings. <laughs> uh, to Hunsty Smith reportedly confessed to Milwaukee police saying she waited for her husband to fall asleep before lighting his head on fire in her confession. She said she believed he had put something toxic on her chicken wings that she was eating earlier. The man was rushed to the hospital with burns over multiple parts of his body. Uh, he apparently will recover. Uh, Ms. Smith is in custody on charges of recklessly endangering the safety of another, causing mayhem, and of course, arson. <laughs> uh, no word on whether he actually did poison her chicken wings. I That I don't know, but again, maybe a slight overreaction. The Sonoma Sheriff's Office in Santa Rosa, California, says a man is lucky to be alive after he was rescued, having spent two days trapped inside some farm equipment at a California vineyard. Police say they got a report about a suspicious vehicle parked in some private property. When deputies arrived, they found the car parked in a location that made no sense and that there was a uh, they couldn't initially they couldn't find the guy, but they noticed a hat on top of a piece of farm equipment located nearby. When authorities went to investigate, they were shocked to find that the occupant of the vehicle had inexplicably decided to climb into the shaft of a vineyard fan and become completely stuck inside of the contraption. He'd been stuck there for two days. Before he was found, they were able to extricate the man who explained that he liked to take photos of the engines of old farm equipment. The sheriff's office, though, concluded after a thorough investigation, uh, revealed the farm equipment was not antique and the man had far more methamphetamine than camera equipment. So they didn't buy the story. It just didn't add up. The motivation to climb the fan shaft remains a total mystery. But uh, the, uh, the man, whose name is not given in the report, uh, is in custody. The New York Times makes the broken news this morning. Apparently, they made a big error on Tuesday. I don't know if you happen to see this. The paper posted an article online at the New York Times website. The headline read... Fields of watermelons found on Mars. The subheading, Authorities say rise of fruit aliens is to blame for glut of outer space watermelons. This immediately drew attention from confused readers. <laughs> the uh, byline of the article was credited to Joe Schmo, which doesn't seem to... It wouldn't seem to be a real reporter. And no, it wasn't. The article was only up for about an hour before it was removed and replaced on the Times website with a note reading, this article was published in error, a mock article intended for testing a system that, that would post material to the website, uh, was uh, inadvertently published. Uh, the uh, company was testing their content management system and accidentally published a joke article. Um, and people on Twitter had a field day, though, cracking jokes about the article. One user tweeting, how embarrassing. 
The Times broke the embargo, the embargo and published early. Uh, NASA, the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> Fields of watermelons found on Mars. Authorities say rise of fruit aliens is to blame. <laughs> that would be big news. <laughs> that would be big news if it were real. And finally, in the broken news this morning, this is our viral internet fail of the day. Report another report of a gender reveal gone horribly wrong. This time, a party ignited a wildfire in Alberta, Canada. It was started by a family that used an exploding target to reveal the gender of their soon-to-be new baby. The discs, loaded with colored powder, detonate when struck by a projectile such as a bullet. When you fire around at them and it connects, it creates a small explosion of blue or pink powder. But an explosion nonetheless, and that's the the part that got them into trouble. Travis Fairweather, Wildfire Information Officer with Alberta Wildfire, said in an interview with the CBC, especially in dry conditions, that initial explosion can create some heated debris, and when that hits the ground, it can simmer and certainly start a wildfire, and that's what happened. One person has been fined $600 for setting off the fire, the third such unintentional wildfire started by an exploding target in Alberta so far this wildfire season. Three so far this season alone. People, stop doing this. Whatever happened to just baking a cake that's either pink or blue and being done with it? That, you know, those are those are fine, but people start going crazy with these gender reveals and getting into trouble. There you go. That is today's broken news report brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. It's the WFIN Virtual Car Show. Get them out, shine them up, and upload a pic of your classic, and we'll post it to WFIN.com for everybody to see. In addition, we'll have an online car show calendar so that you know when and where all the area shows are. It's chrome and horsepower on display online. The WFIN Virtual Car Show and Calendar. Thanks to Details Auto Spa, Loritz Chevrolet Cadillac, and 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. And now today's daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Uh, This is uh, a bit complicated, a lot of uh, data in here, but I thought it was uh, really interesting. It appears that it is best to keep your relationship off of social media. Uh, If you want to, uh, you want to know the secret to a happy and healthy, long-lasting romantic relationship Keep it off of Facebook. Now, this was a poll of 2,000 British citizens. So it's conducted in Great Britain, but I have to think human nature being what it is, it would really apply uh, globally. Uh, What they found was that just 10% of those who post images of themselves and their partner on social media described the state of their relationship as very happy. Just 10% of those who regularly post images of the two of them as a couple say that their relationship is very happy. 46% who said they do not publish such posts said that their relationship was, in fact, 
a very happy one. So the less you post, the happier you are, according to this survey. Uh, Nearly three quarters of respondents who define their relationship as either very happy or happy say that they never post couples content online. Conversely, among those who regularly share such posts, 42% said their relationship is very unhappy. Licensed marriage and family therapist Jessica Small, who is not part of the survey but examined the results, says posts on social media can create unrealistic expectations for partners or lead them to feel that their spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, that their partner is only interested in sharing how great the relationship is if it is on public display. Let me repeat that because that is really interesting. Posts on social media can create unrealistic expectations, which is not a surprise. We know that, but could lead those in the relationship, one party or the other, to feel that their partner is only interested in sharing how great the relationship is if it's on public display. When this happens, intimacy becomes lost and it decreases emotional safety. She says, Another huge drawback of social media is that it takes people out of the here and now, and the couples who feel satisfied in their relationship tend to put down their devices and spend time focused and being present with one another. So, and, and you can certainly understand that. If you are happier in your relationship, if you truly enjoy the company of your significant other, then you're probably not walking around with your nose in the phone all the time. You're probably putting your device down and spending some time in the real world with that loved one. So, a really interesting survey certainly would indicate that the secret to a happy, healthy, long-lasting romantic relationship is to keep it off of social media. Well, summer is here and people are looking for new adventures to finally get out of the house. As it happens, June is National Camping Month and we have travel expert and Travel Channel host Megan Kaiser with us this morning to share some tips to help make sure you have a great experience in the great outdoors. And Megan, the great thing about camping is you can do it in a national park, you can do it at a state park, local campground, even your own backyard if you like. So the possibilities here are endless. Absolutely. Plus, it's safe. You get that fresh mountain air, and it's very low cost, which is one of my favorite things. Yeah, no question about it. June is camping month, but you can camp all year round. And the great thing about it is you can really do it on your terms. You get your own gear. You provide your own transportation. You're in the fresh air, so you don't have to worry about a lot of the things we've all been worrying about lately. So just try it out. A lot of times um, you can camp in places that you don't have to pay for or it's just a low fee. One thing for newbies to keep in mind is that camping is a little bit different than staying in a hotel or at a resort. You're sharing the great outdoors with everything from bugs to bears. What are the best way to keep those pests away? Well, I'm one of those people that bugs just adore, so (laughs) I have to have bug spray. I've tried a lot of brands. My favorite is Ranger Ready. It is a DEET alternative repellent, so I love that. It's going to provide 12 hours of protection against mosquitoes and ticks, 
eight hours for biting flies, gnats, noceums, um, and other biting insects. It's non-greasy. You can wear it every day. It's really safe. Um, I love the scents of this brand, too. You've got Amber, Night Sky, a kid-friendly orange, but they also have a line that is called Scent Zero. So it's scent-free, which is a minor miracle for Buck Sprays. Kind of along those same lines, packing for a camping trip is going to be a little different than going to resort. If you're going to be out in the middle of nowhere, may not be as easy to pick up supplies that you might have forgotten. So you want to double and triple check before you go that you have everything that you're going to need or want on your trip. Absolutely. And one thing I realized recently, I was on a 10-day hiking trip to the Appalachian Trail my phone storage ran out in about two days because I love to take photos and videos. So I use the SanDisk Extreme Portable SSD V2. Um, it's the perfect external drive to store all your photos and memories without having to worry about it getting damaged while on the go. This little guy is extremely durable. It's water and dust resistant. It has a little built-in key ring. Um, starts at just under $85 and goes up to four terabytes of storage space. So whether you're at the beach where it's all sandy, hiking in the elements, or just traveling, um, you want to keep those memories safe, and it's real easy to do a data dump with this. It's about the size of a credit card. Love it. Uh, yeah, that is a, a good point, too, that even though uh, you're going to be roughing it, you still need a little technology because, of course, you want to preserve all of those camping memories. Absolutely. And let me ask you about this because it's kind of central to any camping trip, and that is the campfire uh, essential. Obviously, we want to stay safe, uh, but this is where you make all the treats and all of the magic happens. Absolutely. What's more essential than eating? Um, now, I'm a Georgia girl, so I love peanuts. They're one of the best camping and travel snacks because they're easy, portable, filling. I mean, ounce for ounce, there's a lot of tasty nutrition packed into this snack. I like to make my own trail mix, just dried fruit, some dark chocolate, peanuts. But if I'm talking about chocolate, we need to talk about sitting around the campfire having s'mores. I just made an amazing discovery. Well, someone introduced me. Instead of plain chocolate on the s'mores, we used peanut butter cups. Absolute Ooh. game changer. You have to try it. Oh, that is uh, that is <laughs> fabulous. So definitely going to file that away for use on our next trip. Anything else that mm. we need to uh, keep in mind for those who are ready to head out into the great outdoors? I would say don't forget that you're going to have to fuel up your car. You're going to still have to buy things for gear and keeping yourself uh, ready. Use a credit card that earns you points because that's like free money. You just need a few points to start cashing in on experiences, a few thousand points for free hotel stays, free flights, lots of free things you can get. So you can get up to three to five points per dollar with some of these great cards. Don't miss out on free money. All right. Lots of tips like that again in my book, Everywhere for Nothing, Free Travel for the Modern Nomad. And as for everything I talked about today, you can just find it all on tipsontv.com. We will link that up on our webpage. Again, travel expert, travel channel host Megan Kaiser for National Camping Month. Megan, thanks very much for the info. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chris. And that is our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And a reminder, you can get more information on all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. Check it out. Coming up tomorrow on the program, State Senator Rob McCauley discusses the Senate's state budget bill. And at long last, the Marathon Center is set to announce the return of live shows in a resumed performing arts season. We'll get a preview. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, 
going out and making it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.